My name is Susie. I have three children, the youngest of whom struggles with anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. I never thought this could happen to me, and I miss the signs. Being a parent is really hard, but I'm here to help. I'm talking to other parents and experts to help you with the struggles that your kids may face. I want you to know that you are not alone and there is hope. I'm not a physician, therapist, or counselor. I'm just a mom. I want to see you smile again, take away that pain in them clouds I keep covering up the sun. On this episode of Just a Mom, I am incredibly honored to be joined by a lifelong friend, and her name is Suzanne. And this is actually my first remote recording. And in complete honesty, had a little hiccup, had to FaceTime Will and have him talk me through it because as I've said before, I am not great at technology, but thankfully I have Will to help me with that. Suzanne, it's an incredible honor that you are here with me today. I am humbled that you're willing to share your story to help people and I know that it will. So thank you so much for being on this episode of Just a Mom. Thank you, Susie. I'm glad to be here. I'm going to start off just by asking you to tell me a little bit uh, about your family. Well, I have um, two boys and Nicholas was born in 1996. He would be 26 today. And Stuart was born in 98, and we just celebrated his 24th birthday this weekend. And I have been married to my husband, George, for 15 years. And George has four grown children of his own. So we have a very large blended family. So you just said that your son, Nick, today is his birthday. No. um, I'm sorry. Stuart's birthday was this weekend, and we celebrated Stuart this weekend. But Nick would be 26 this month. Got it this month. Okay. I knew it was sometime, but I would, couldn't remember exactly when. Would you just tell us a little bit about the beginnings of your journey parenting a child with mental illness? Sure. So I think that, um, well, everything did begin back in um, probably around 2013, 2014. Um, I noticed Nick spending a lot of time out of the house with friends or when he was home, he was, you know, kind of by himself in a room, Um, but he was always happy. He was always loud. Um, He was always um, thoughtful of other people. He was a very caring person and he thought deeply and he hurt deeply. When others were hurting, Nick was definitely hurting himself. feeling-wise, hurting himself. And I think that Nick was um, felt at such a deep level that that caused him possibly more pain than maybe others. I think that he started self-medicating, maybe with um, some various um, marijuana and things like that. Um, A lot of it, I was in denial. I was married, had been married to my husband, George, for maybe five or six years at this point. And I'm a teacher, teaching first grade at that point. And so 
I think a lot of it, I just kind of buried my head in the sand and thought, oh, this isn't really happening, or this is teenage years. Um, and then Nick graduated from high school, and he was going to go to Indiana University, and we went up for orientation. And I remember lots of times he would get a stomach ache and he would get sick, and I started thinking, you know, I think he has anxiety. And so this is really, you know, this is in 2015. This is really before people were talking about mental health, and it was not something that any of my friends talked about. It wasn't something that I'd grown up knowing anything about. Um, and I had grown up in a family that, you know, you just hide everything, brush it under the rug, everything's perfect, put on a cute outfit and head out the door, and nobody knows anything's wrong with your family. So I felt very alone at that point. And I remember Nick and I were at orientation and walking into the cafeteria and he said, Mom, I feel sick. And I just stopped on the sidewalk and I said, Nick, I think you have anxiety. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, let's look it up. I think that some of these symptoms that you're talking about are anxiety. And so we get to the cafeteria and he took one bite of food and he said, I, I can't, I'm gonna be sick. And I just sat there with him and I said, Nick, I think that we need to get an appointment with a psychiatrist when we get back to Dallas. And this was in June or July before he's going to go off to college in August. And um, we did get him into a psychiatrist and they did diagnose him with depression and anxiety. And, you know, at that point I thought, okay, well, okay, can you give him medicine and we go on down the road? You know, I still did not have a grasp of what that really was and how extreme it was for Nick. And so he went off to college his <clears throat> sophomore, his freshman year, went off to Indiana and um, had a semi-okay year. He had some ups and downs, but he seemed to be happy while he was there. Um, his younger brother was going through some issues of his own at home. And I remember having conversations with Nick and Nick felt very um, deeply about that and very hurt and very um, hopeful that we could get the right help for Stuart that he needed. So I think that that just kind of brought it all to um, where I really started realizing how deeply Nick felt. And then he was um, came home, his made it through his freshman year, came home his sophomore year. He dealt with a lot of um, several friends that had either been killed in accidents or things of that nature. And um, he it was almost as if Nick couldn't cope with that. He would call me just sobbing hysterically and just was not could not get past it. And um, I'll never forget when he called me one time and there was a, a young guy that he had gone to high school with. They weren't friends, but he remembered talking to him in classes and how nice this kid was to him. And the kid um, killed his mother and his brother and himself. And I remember Nick calling me just sobbing and saying, Mom, he killed his mama. How could this have happened? And he said, this wasn't him. He had brain issues. He'd had concussions. and. So I just remember really looking back at just thinking, gosh, he hurts so much. When when he hurts, the pain is beyond anything that I could really even wrap my brain around. And then this sophomore year in the fall, I remember him calling and he said, Mom, I think I have mono. I'm just sleeping all the time. And it didn't dawn on me then what that was. And I said, honey, you've got to get to the doctor. And I later found out that his roommate had literally picked him up out of bed, carried him to the car, and got him to the doctor. And I remember Nick calling and he said, I don't have mono, mom. And I said, okay. 
And, you know, looking back, I think, I can't believe I didn't jump on a plane and go up there and check on him. But this was in, um, let's see, 2016. And I just thought, well, he'll be home. He'll be home soon. And again, I was dealing with his younger brother and worrying about him and what he was going through. And so that's where my mind was focused. It wasn't focused on mental health issues with Nick. And so Nick came home then at Thanksgiving and I picked him up at the airport and I remember saying, how are you? And he just burst into tears and he said, mom, I'm not good. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I think I need to come home. And I said, like, come home home? And he said, yeah, I think I need to leave school and come home. And I said, okay. I said, well, do you think you can finish the semester? And he said, I, I will try. And at this point, another friend of his in Indiana had been in a car accident. And he said, if he doesn't survive, I won't, I won't be okay. I won't make it. And I, I was like, honey, yes, you will. And he was like, no, I won't. And so I think that just all this pain from all these different incidents that had happened, he just, he, for whatever reason, his, he felt so deeply and took all of this in that I think that it was way more severe than I even realized. And so he came home in November. He did go back and finish the semester and then packed up his stuff and, and came home in December for Christmas. And he was happy and I thought he was doing really well. And I had told him if he came home, I wanted him to see a psychiatrist and let's you know figure some things out and go to a counselor as well. I didn't just want him taking a med and moving on down the road. I said, you need to talk with a counselor as well. And so I remember looking up some counselors for him and sending him some information about him so he could kind of make a decision. Obviously, he was, you know, 19 years old at this point, almost 20. So he could, he had to make the appointments and do everything himself. And so he um, looked those up and he got into a psychiatrist, went back to his psychiatrist. And he had gone to his psychiatrist on January the 9th. And on January the 10th, he took his own life. And so that brings it to, to today. And it was never, ever on our radar. That was never something that I would have expected in a million years, nor would his friends have. Um, so I think that, you know, going through that is just, I mean, it's, it's, it's unimaginable. And just thinking, my goodness, wait a minute. This, how did this happen? And I remember just the shock of it. Prior to that day, had you talked to any of your friends or your family about what Nick was going through? You know, I really hadn't because of what we were dealing with with Stuart, um, our youngest. And so because all the focus had been on him and really hadn't thought anything about Nick not being okay. And I do remember maybe telling family that he was having a hard time and he wanted to come home for a semester. and really that was all that I was sharing with anyone is just that he was coming, he was having a hard time in coming home. You said his friends also were in complete shock. They had no idea. There were no signs mm -mm. other than the, the sleeping a lot, maybe. Right. And his roommate acted on that. Yes. Yes. But no, his friends never suspected anything like this. Um, never saw it coming. Even 
the night that it happened. He had been with friends. He had been texting with friends. Um, no one ever suspected anything of this nature. He never had a cry for help or mentioned that something of this nature might happen. It was just never, never spoken of, never thought it would be anything. When you think about Nick, what are the words you would use to describe him? You know, one of the funny things we like to say is Nick was loud and we all laugh about that. We used to say that Nick didn't have a whisper. He could not whisper, um, which is a funny thing. But really when we think about him, it was his kindness. He loved everyone so deeply um, and he wanted to help people and he wanted to be there. And I think that that he almost was too much of a feeler and he took on everyone else's problems, I believe, and didn't take care of himself, but rather felt the pain of others. Um, he was also a very deep thinker. And I think that he thought a lot about all these different things that happened and why they happened. I think he put a lot of energy into that. Um, and I get a hard time understanding why is this happening and what is all this pain that's in the, in the world and all this suffering and why is it here? But he was, um, I would have said he was happy. He was happy. He was the life of the party. He, um, you knew when he entered the room um, because he was loud. And I would just never have thought he wasn't, a, he was very outgoing. After that day and your life moves on and you have to get up out of bed, would you mind telling us what that was like in the days and weeks and months that followed his death. You know, it's almost a blur. I remember feeling, looking back, I almost see myself like a robot. I would get up every day, I would make my bed, I would take a shower and get dressed. And I just kind of went through the motions. I was a teacher at the time and I took nine weeks off from teaching. I taught first graders. So the thought of going back was a lot on my mind it weighed very heavily the school thankfully was fabulous and gave me the time off that I needed but I remember thinking I don't know if I can go back and look at these little seven-year-olds and not have my 20-year-old son at home and I just remember even anywhere I would go going to the grocery store anything I would think these people are just here and don't they know Nick has died? You know, I just wanted to scream at the top of my lungs. You know, this is not okay. You all are just going on and look what's happened. And I remember feeling, and I still feel this way sometimes, it's almost surreal. It's almost like I'm talking about someone else's story, not my own. Um, it's almost like I'm telling you about a TV show that I watched or a book that I read, not that I'm telling my own story and what happened to my child. And so I think that um, I did end up going back nine weeks after taking the nine weeks off, I did go back to teaching and I finished out the year. And um, I really had to think through whether I was gonna do that. Thankfully, I was already in with a wonderful counselor when we lost Nick. And so it was good to be able to process that with her as to what I was gonna do and if I was going to go back and what that was going to look like. And I think just, I put on that fake front when I went back. And I think that that's what, um, I still find myself doing that. You know, I'm such a people pleaser and I've really had to work through that and recognize that 
I don't have to do that, but I would put on that mask. I would walk those halls of the school and act like I was okay when inside I was dying. It took all I had to get through teaching those, you know, seven hours and get back home. And I remember I would just go home and I would get in my bed and I would sleep for two hours and then get up and, you know, get dinner ready and go back to bed. That was a very difficult time and very odd to go and just act like everything was okay when it wasn't. And people didn't know what to say. So many people said nothing, which I completely understand. Um, it is hard to know what to say to someone when they've lost someone, and especially a child. But people would just smile at me and, hi, hi, how are you? And, you know, I'm, I'm terrible. I mean, do you really want to know how I am? Mm-hmm. So I think that's another thing is, is people knowing what, what to say and what not to say. To that point, what would you tell people to say you know someone said to me she came up and hugged me and she said I know that there's nothing I can say to make this better but I want you to know that I love you and I'm praying for you and you are so strong to be here today Um, I loved that rather than just you know not acknowledging it at all I've also even recently now we're you know almost six years later and recently I ran into someone I hadn't seen since Nick was in high school and she hugged me and said, how are you? And she said, you know, I want to tell you some things I remember about Nick. And she just started talking about Nick. And it was the most beautiful thing. And all these memories she had of him. And I just stood there and I just smiled. And I said, thank you so much for telling me. I said, people don't do this. And it meant the absolute world to me that not only did she have these memories, but that she would stand there and just openly share them with me. And it was just such a beautiful moment. And I, you know, I think people always think, oh, I don't want to say anything and remind her of it. Well, I'm reminded of it every day. There's never a time that I don't think of Nick each day. And um, so for people to remember him and people to say something was so special. And so I think that's something that I would love everybody to know is talk about it say the person's name you know even if it's just I know that you're missing Nick today and I'm thinking about you this Christmas season or whatever you know it may be um just acknowledging that loss I can't speak for every mother I can only speak for myself but for me that's my biggest fear is losing a child what would you say to that? You know, I think the hardest thing is that we can't control our children. And, you know, we're used to being mamas and we want to protect them and we want to do everything we can for our children, but we can't save them. And that is the very hardest thing is to recognize that we're not in control of their life. And so I, I think I would say live for each day and enjoy each day and recognize that there isn't anything that you can do to change what they are or they aren't going to do and to enjoy what you have in front of you today. When did things start changing for you in terms of, you know, you went back to school after you'd been off for nine weeks. At what point did you, I hate to use the terms, start getting better because I don't know that you ever do right I mean I don't know 
but was there something that happened or you know particular counseling session or conversation where you were thinking okay i i can keep going on and not just going through the motions and putting on the face that's a good question i think that um i really had to work through allowing myself to feel i wanted to just put on that mask and go through life and pretend nothing happened and everything was okay and I had to recognize that that is not the way to get through such a terrible tragedy, that I had to allow myself to feel. And I think because growing up, I was never taught to feel. I didn't know emotions. I can remember someone saying, what are you doing to take care of you? And I couldn't even comprehend what that meant. Um, And so I think really working through it with my counselor and really recognizing that I had to grieve and I had to feel. And I, there was no timeline for grief. And there was no, you know, I like everything linear. I wanted everything to be in a neat little box and say, okay, you're going to have this for three months, then you're going to feel this for six months, and then you're going to move through. And it's not. It's a constant roller coaster. And the emotions of sadness and anger and all of the emotions that I had to go through. And I think I had to recognize too that it was okay to be mad at Nick. And I, th- I think in the beginning I felt so guilty being mad at him because he had hurt so badly, had so much pain. and But I was mad. I was mad that he didn't allow me to reach in and help him, um, that he didn't ask for help, that he didn't even allude even to his psychiatrist that he'd seen the day before we lost him. He hadn't even alluded to the psychiatrist because thankfully the psychiatrist did call me and we did have a chance to talk and he did not see the signs one bit. And so I think that just goes to show how easy it was for Nick to hide it. Um, And so I had to go through and recognize all of these things um, and allow myself to feel that pain and to sit with that pain. And I didn't like that. It's very uncomfortable for me. And I think once I finished teaching school that May, we lost Nick in January, and then that May, and I think it was after that, and it was that summer when I really just had to allow myself to start going through and feeling. And there's still times that I find I'm shutting down again. And then I go through a period. It's usually the fall of each year because Nick's birthday was November 8th, and then Thanksgiving and Christmas. So it's usually this season where it's difficult for me. And I find, um, you know, I'm having to force myself to do things a little bit more and to get out and, but it's hard. So I'd say, I'm not sure that there was really a time. I think it just kind of ebbs and flows. Um, and I've just had to recognize that one day I may be mad and that madness may stay for a couple days. And then it may be a week later that the sadness comes in and I'm just grieving terribly for that loss. And then going to, you know, as a mom, did I miss the signs? What should I have done? What did I do wrong? And working through it with myself that it's not my fault. You know, it's not something that I did or I didn't do. And I think the shame that we feel as parents is huge. Um, And I think I dealt with a lot of guilt over the fact that I missed signs with Nick because I was so engrossed with what we were going with with our younger son which that's a whole nother podcast but I think that um that I just I missed a lot with Nick and I think Nick 
Um, in fact, I know from, from Nick's friends, Nick never wanted me to know how hurt he was. He and I were, um, as his friends would say, he loved me so much. And that's such a blessing knowing that he knew how much I loved him and that he loved me. I'll never forget one of his friends saying to me, um, he said, Suzanne, I remember being outside with him one day and he was having a hard day. And he said, if I could just be with my mama, I'd be okay. And I was just told this a few years ago um, from a friend in Indiana. And he just sobbed on me. And he said, he loved you so much. And to hear those words from a you know 21 year old boy um, who could remember vividly. And so I just think back to how much I loved Nick and he knew he was loved and he in return could love as well. And so I do try to focus on that. And I do try to remember that um, he would want me to do things like this, to talk about it um, and to help other people because that's where his heart was. It's hard to imagine unless you've been in your position, what the depths of grief and pain must be. And like I said, for me personally, I can't imagine that it ever would go away. So I appreciate you sharing what you just shared and because that's really personal and intimate. Um, and I have no doubt that somebody's going to listen to this and say, yes, that's exactly how I still feel today. So thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. How did Nick's death affect your other son who was simultaneously going through a difficult time? Now, I think it was um, very hard on him. He was in Arizona at the time, and he was going to the University of Arizona. He was a freshman. He'd started there in that January. Um, his journey had been a little bit different than what we often think of for the typical journey for our children. And so he had only been in Arizona, um, in Tucson, excuse me, for about seven days when we lost Nick. Um, we had gone up and moved him from a boarding school where he had been in Arizona to Tucson where he was going to start at the University of Arizona. So I was very fearful of what this would do to him. I was quick to make sure that he had people in Arizona surrounding him until we could get to him and get him home. And it was hard on him. It was very hard on him. I think that he um, he and Nick had been apart for so several years now um, and hadn't seen each other very much. And I think during childhood, um, Stu, my youngest, had kind of been Nick's punching bag. And being the younger brother, Stuart had taken a lot from his older brother. Um, but fortunately, over the last year of Nick's life, Stuart and Nick had been able to talk and um, really clear up some things that had been a part of their lives and really had gotten closer. And so I think the, the sadness that Stuart didn't get to spend any years with Nick as an, a, a young adult. Um, I think that's very hard for him. And Stuart has really wanted to 
get to know Nick's friends that he had in those years when Stuart was away. And he's gotten very close to them and they've really taken Stuart in as a little brother. And, um, you know, they'll tell him, we, we do this for Nick because Nick would want you to be okay. And so he longed to learn everything that he could about Nick and what Nick's life was like that last year um, when they weren't able to talk very much and see each other very much. And thankfully, they did get to be together that Christmas before we lost Nick. They got to be together for one day then. And so I was very thankful that they had that. They had that. Um, but just thinking, thinking through, you know, how hard it was on Stuart and how he and I didn't, didn't talk about it a whole lot when it first happened. Um, and then a few months later, we were able to really sit and just kind of talk about what we both knew and um, sharing that with each other. But I, I very much worried about Stuart at the time that he would fall into a hole that he couldn't get himself out of. And I did fear for a while that I would also lose him. Um, and I'm very thankful that he had the help that he needed available to him and he did go through a dark period that spring and um, we got a call and thought we might need to go get him and, and bring him home um, but fortunately we were able to kind of intervene there and, and get some some people on board there that could that could help him but he had definitely fallen into a pretty dark pretty dark hole that spring it was probably around um april i'm guessing march or april and wasn't going to class and just got very very depressed and you know, i just worried that he would um, start self-medicating or, you know, something that would also take him down. So I think also worrying about him at that same point of grieving the loss of Nick um, just was a lot. Absolutely. I'm sitting here thinking, and you're getting up and going to school mm -hmm. and putting yeah. the face on. Mm -hmm. No wonder you came home and slept. Yeah. It had to have been exhausting. Yes. Emotionally. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Wow. I, and, I, I mean, I really can't even imagine. Yeah, it was hard. And it was a decision. Was, was I going to go back to work or not go back to work? And that was that was a tough decision. And, you know, some people had said, will you regret if you don't? Will you feel like you got up and you did it and you're proud that you did it? And looking back, I'm I'm glad that I did. But I also think I would have been fine if I hadn't. You know, part of me thinks... I wish I would have just thrown my hands up and said, I can't do it. But um, I did, and I was just a robot, but I did it. And I think that is the hard thing, is not not talking about feelings. It's certainly back in 2017, nobody was talking about feelings very much, and nobody knew anything that I was going through with Stuart at the time, um, very little. Um, and so that was another bit that, you know, I felt like I was hiding so much of my life um, and not able to share it for fear of judgment from other people. And that was a really hard place to be. And that is not an uncommon feeling when we have children who've struggled or who have died by suicide. And particularly, I just think of our generation and how we were raised and you know you put on that face and you go out there and you suck it up and you don't let them see you cry mm -hmm. and you don't tell anybody how you're feeling 
And then we have this generation of our children and we parented them that way because that's how we were parented and we didn't know any better. And something I've said since I started the Just a Mom podcast is I really wish I had heard every single episode 25 years ago before I had a child Mm -hmm. and how differently I would have parented. What would you say about that just in terms of what you've learned about mental health, et cetera? Well, I think you're exactly right. Had we known more, had we been able to talk about feelings more, had we understood even to be able to recognize feelings, um, I definitely would have parented my kids differently. Even thinking about that um, as a teacher, even with the little ones, that I would have talked more about feelings. You know, what what are these different feelings? And let's identify them and let's talk about, you know, or even... Um, you know, when they hurt somebody, talk about, you know, what that feeling was, what they were thinking, what they were feeling that caused them to lash out or what feeling they think they left the friend that they hurt. You know, I just think there are so many different ways that we could parent that I wish so badly that I had known. Um, I think I'm able to talk more with Stuart now about feelings than I ever have before. And when I recognize something in him or see something in him that worries me, I tell him. And he's always thankful for that. And he will say, thanks, Mom, you're right. I am having a hard time, but I'm on top of it. So I think not being afraid to bring these things up and to, you know, have a feelings chart and point to those feelings. What are they? And, uh, you know, recognize the signs that those feelings give us, you know, whether it's anger or love or shame or guilt and what it does to our bodies physically when we have those feelings. Um and just helping kids to recognize that. I think that that would be such an important part in understanding their health so that when they recognize different signs, they're able to identify them. I think that's the hardest part is even identifying what you're, what you're feeling really is if you've never been taught to recognize your feelings, rather you just brush them under the carpet. That's so good. And I do think this next generation of parents are doing some of that because I see these younger kids in different situations and they are talking about mental health Mm -hmm. and they're starting organizations and doing suicide prevention events. And just a few weeks ago, I was at an event with um, some high schoolers and some adults and the high schoolers raising their hand, asking what was being done about mental health for the adults. And the adults were all kind of looking at each other like, I can't believe they're asking these questions, but they were so free to ask those questions. And I thought, okay, this is progress. Yes. And our generation needs to learn from them that we've got to talk about this. Mm -hmm. And to recognize it as... Um, a true illness. Absolutely. You've talked about that on some of your other podcasts. You know, it's not, if it was cancer, we'd be the first to be at their door with a casserole. But because it's mental health and so many people either don't understand it or don't believe that it's real. Um, Even people in our generation, Susie, that, um, you know, I'm in my early 50s and, you know, people still 
um, that have kids and think it's it's not a real thing. And certainly the generation, our parents' generation, the generation above us, they certainly don't understand it. You just get up and keep on going. So I think that I'm hopeful that the younger generations are talking about it and understanding it and doing things about it. And hopefully when they rec- when they see the signs in one of their friends that they're saying something to them mm-hmm. and asking if they need help, if they can do something. And I think the more we can talk about that and the more these children feel free to talk about it, that the more help there's going to be. Absolutely. Do you share now with your friends and family, like if you're having a bad day, do you reach out to somebody? How do you, or how have you changed and evolved over the last six years in that regard? You know, it's so interesting because I feel like my life has really changed just because um, I left teaching. And so I don't see a lot of those people anymore um, or the families there anymore. And I've kind of had to figure out what retired life is like and what that looks like for me. I have a wonderful group of, very small group of friends that are new actually since Nick passed away. And we are, there are five of us and we're all very, very close. And that's a group that we meet together once a week and I'm able to share any and everything with them knowing that it's in a safe space. And so I do reach out to them when I'm having a hard day or something's not okay, I just reach out and I know that they're, um, that they're there and they're available. I also have sisters that are wonderful. Um, and so that's a good, that's a good thing as well. But I definitely, I definitely do tell, but I'm very careful who I tell and what I share still. Why is that? You know, I wish I knew Susie. And since we first talked, I've, I've really thought a lot about that. And, um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why I do that. I think um, I still probably deal with some shame and some guilt, um, which I'm still working through. But just kind of thinking through that, I just, I guess because it, I think it happened six years ago, and so I just kind of don't go into that. But I will say that it's it's hard when I meet new people now because we're in a um, just a different we're in a different neighborhood now we're in a different church and so when I meet people I find it hard and people will say oh do you all have children and how many children do you have and that question is still a hard question for me um I've learned to just say between the two of us we have six children um and that includes Nick um so it's just it's hard to know as an adult of 50 years old what do I share now with people? What do I go back and tell now? Obviously, if I knew that someone was in a situation, I would want to help them, but I'm not real quick to share my story. And it's, I don't know that it's for any certain reason that I don't. I just, I think because I haven't, that it's not naturally something that I reach out and do, but I definitely am feeling a prompting more and more to go and to talk and to share my story and to be available to help other people. Well, it took me a really long time as well to, you know, put it all out there. I've had close friends after the first three episodes uh, aired, call me and say, I had no idea 
but it was so bad. Even when I did disclose to my friends, I didn't go into the depths and the super dark stuff um, that we talked about on those episodes. And I think for me anyway, it's, some of it's just reliving it all that it's so painful. But also I interviewed a, a mom a few weeks ago and she said, it can just be so exhausting to go back to the beginning and explain everything to people who haven't been through it. And I just don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. I can definitely and, relate to that. Yeah. And I think like she was talking about, she has a group of friends that their children all were inpatient hospitalized together for lengths of time. So they came together and she said, it was so nice. We didn't have to like say, well, this is what happens when your kid's depressed and blah, blah, blah. And she said, everybody just knew. And that's so nice to not, yeah, have to go through the whole story and explanations. And then you get the questions and. Right. So maybe, I don't know. Yeah. And I wish that we didn't felt. feel as mamas, that we didn't feel that shame and that guilt and that we did feel free to, to tell it. And that's, and that's where I hope everyone can get is to recognize it can happen to any family. It doesn't matter where you are, what you came from, you know, it's, it can happen to anyone. And that's what people have got to start recognizing. And pe there are always going to be people that don't understand and people that step away and say, I, uh, that's, uh, I don't get that. I'm out of here. But there also could be somebody who it triggers something in them and they think, gosh, I've noticed that same thing in my child. Or, But I think it's just, it's that initial, oh my gosh, my child's not quote unquote normal. My family's not, you know, perfect with the everything in place like it should be. And we don't want people to know that. And Even though there is no perfect family. There isn't. And I can remember my counselor saying to me today, I just said, I just want everything to be normal. And she said, Suzanne, what's normal? Mm -hmm. There is no normal. And it really kind of opened my eyes. And I thought, you're right. There is, is no normal. Yeah, it's such a false idea that we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. You have mentioned that you had been married just a few years when you lost Nick. Mm -hmm. How did losing Nick affect your marriage? You know, that's such a good question because um, that's one that several people have asked. And it's hard because obviously my husband was not the biological father, but he had loved and adored Nick. And um, he had lost a wife to cancer. And so I think he's he had that compassion and that understanding of a loss, although it wasn't the loss of a child. He um, is very tenderhearted and he could empathize with me and feel that pain with me. Um, and so it did not affect our marriage in a bad way, thankfully. it. Um, I don't know that it drew us any closer, but it certainly didn't damage the marriage. And I'm thankful for that. He's very much a rock and very much 
um, one that's always there to listen. And um, I think he's had to learn over the years that he can't always fix things, quote unquote fix. He's, you know, oftentimes we run across those who are fixers and he's definitely a fixer and he had to recognize he can't fix this and he can't take this pain away. And so I think him just learning that he just needed to sit there with me in that grief and in that hard time. And there was nothing he could say to make it okay. And so um, I guess we were empty, basically empty nesters at that point. Um, and so it was just the two of us. And so we really, you know, he really worked hard to see how he could help me and what, what I needed and what I wanted. And he was very quick for anything that I wanted to do. He would jump on board and let's go do it. Um, and I think that was his way of feeling like he was doing something to make it better. This is a hard question. But what are some of the like hurtful or bad things that people have said to you or asked you? Um, I would say that I, I didn't really have very many of those, which I think is so interesting because I know I've been in a couple of different grief groups that I've done and people have spoken of things that were said to them that were just so ugh, horrible. But I didn't have that, and I'm really thankful. I would say some of the things were from the kids um, that I was a teacher to, um, you know, how did your son die, things like that. And that was a hard one because, you know, seven-year-olds, six-year-olds, you're not explaining. And so I do remember I finally just said um, he had a brain disease, and he was his brain was sick, and he died because his brain was sick. And so that kind of helped the children, but that was hard for me too, because when they would ask those questions and then they would just hug me and, you know, it was just, it was hard. It was very, very hard um, because of course, then you have flashbacks to remembering your child at that age. But I would say nothing really, really hard or ugly, which I'm thankful for because I know people mean well, but oftentimes they say the completely wrong things. So... I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for that for you too. What are some things that you really want parents to know about mental health? You know, I think one of the hardest things that I learned um, is I had to make some very, very difficult decisions as a mom, um, helping especially my younger child and what to do with that. And I think I would say the hardest decision decisions that I made as a mom were the best decisions to save my child. And that's referring to my, to my younger son. Um, so I think it's so many times I wanted to make everything easy. You wanna make it easy for your child. You want everything to be perfect. And I had to recognize that some of the hardest things that our children have to endure are probably the best and that trying to make it okay and trying to make everything happy and wonderful is not exactly what they need. And so without saying too much on that, but just, just being able to, to make a difficult decision that you may think is horrible and awful, but recognizing that that's what your child needs to save him or her. And it's not always gonna be easy. And it's been a long time, but my younger son has come back and, and thanked me for what we did and the sacrifices that we made. And um, whereas 
for years and years, he was bitter and angry and now recognizes, wow, look how far I've come because of the hard choices that you made as a mom. And of course, the child isn't going to agree with them. And that's okay. I think mm-hmm. at some point as a mom, we have to recognize, or as a parent, we have to recognize what truly is best for them. And it's not always going to be easy. Absolutely. One well, something I used to tell my kids was, you, know, you, you can be mad at me. I don't care. I'm not here right now to be your friend. Mm-hmm. I'm your mom. Right. <laughs> and you know, maybe later we can be friends. But I'm going to shut down some of this. Or Well, and um, I think so many times they try to put it back on us and make us feel guilty. And I was quick to remind my children, no, 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 you did this to yourself. I didn't send you away. I didn't send you to that program. You did that to yourself. Your actions sent you there. So, you know, yeah, same thing, recognizing, putting it back on them. And I think, you know, so many times we want to shift the blame to someone else, that putting it back where it is. And it may not be at that moment when your child's ready to hear it. But years later, hopefully, they begin to recognize that. And I think it's hard, or at least it has been for me on occasion, to really be the heavy because of the mental illness with Will. Like, okay, is he manipulating Mm -hmm. or is this really a need because of his illness and I don't know that there's one right answer to that I would agree with that Susie it's you know in in different times different situations different months of the year you know what works one time may not work another time and I think that's part of what's so difficult is is figuring out what you need to do at that moment for you and for your child which has involved a lot of counseling and therapy for me. Absolutely. For Dan and me. <laughs> and I <laughs> think recognizing as, as moms that, you know, we can't do this on our own. We do need more help to help us see and to help us understand um, what it is that we're dealing with. And for it to be, it's never going to be perfect and okay, but to get to a point where we can go through each day doing the best that we can possibly do. I want to go back to something that you said pretty early on. You said that kids are going to do what they're going to do. They're going to make their own decisions. And I think as a mom, I I used to feel like I could really control (laughs) my kids. Mm -hmm. And so even if we do for a short time, there becomes an age where we really can't. What would you say to the young mom, you know, a mom with toddlers about that? You know, I think um, teaching them young about the feelings and the emotions and the decisions they make and what decisions have, you know, actions that have consequences and those sorts of things, and really talking about those difficult things and talking young and early on and for the parents to recognize that you know we teach them and we hope and pray that they make those right decisions but there's going to come a time 
We are not with them 24-7, and we can't possibly be. And so there's going to come a time where they're going to make their own decision. And it's up to us as parents to know how we're going to deal with that and how we're going to handle that. But to recognize that we are not God. We cannot control and be there for every single thing. And to be prepared as parents to deal with each situation, but to recognize that you're not the one that's going to be able to to do something about it or to change them. You cannot stand there and shake it into their brain to make them know and understand and do exactly what you want them to do. And that's hard. It's really hard, but that's good advice. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to talk about? You know, one of the things is, um, and we hear it so much and we say it so much, is we want to other parents to know and to hear and to understand that they're not alone. And I think, but goodness, how do we reach those parents that are going through this in silence and yet they haven't listened to your podcast or they haven't, they don't have a counselor, they haven't um, been in any mental health fields with any knowledge. You know, how do we reach those people and let them know that mental health is, is a disease and it's not something to be sad about and mad about and hiding and feel such shame over it. Um, And I think that there are so many different um, facets, of course, to the mental illness. There's the addiction, there's the, um, you know, the the serious depression, the um, anxiety, all of those. But I think for so many people that even that addiction piece is so, you feel such shame and such guilt because you are dealing with something that's illegal versus dealing with um, something that's not illegal, but still falls under mental health. And so I would just say as a parent, um, it's hard when there is when there is some addiction involved, that that is a very difficult thing because you do feel that, that shame and perhaps you're dealing with, um, you know, legal consequences and those sort of things. But I think that there's, that that would be a harder piece because of the illegal side of it and I just I wish that there was a way that we could could reach more people and help more people at that point and that people would um, even if people don't understand that they would not be so judgmental about um, kids that are out and or you know caught with drugs or whatever it would be that they would stop and recognize hang on a minute is that something that's ongoing is that perhaps an addiction you know what what's going on here and so I wish that there would be more education on um, all facets of mental health and what that entails and that people would step up and learn and recognize that, you know, it could be your child. Yes, you think you have this quote unquote great little family and everything's going to be normal and it would never happen to me. And then <laughs> I've heard it all. I've heard parents that, you know, if somebody was caught smoking marijuana or something and just the horrible things that they would say about that child and that family and it just looking back it just breaks my heart to think my goodness you know how about stepping in and going wait a minute is this child okay are they self-medicating was it just a rebellious thing you know what what is it and it's just that I just wish there were more more things like exactly what you're doing Susie I'm so thankful that you're doing this podcast and more people need to hear and more parents need to know 
that it's okay and that there's help. And I think that's another another thing that's so hard is finding the right place for help and knowing where to reach out and knowing where to ask, um, what questions even to ask, where to go. Um, and that's, you know, and the financial aspect of it, it's a whole different, um, it's, it's just completely different than anything that I've, I'd ever dealt with. But yeah, just recognizing that, that we need education and that, you know, I would hope, I guess I'm not really in circles anymore where lots of parents are, are talking. Um, but, you know, I wish that I could could hear parents that are saying things about others and, and stop them right there and say, let's stop and think about this. Can you think about it this way? And, you know, back at that point in time, which would have been, you know, 10 years ago, probably, I wasn't in a point that I was even thinking things like that. But I wish now that people would stop and and recognize that it, there could be more to it than just um, they're out there smoking pot and being rebellious. There could be more to it and perhaps we need to step up and find out what that is. Because self-medication is a huge thing with mental illness. And as you're talking about this, I'm picturing one person listening to this episode and that one person saying, you know what? I know somebody whose kid is struggling and I'm gonna be intentional about being a friend to that mom. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's how we make a difference. One person at a time. Yes, I love that, Susie. Yeah, one person, exactly. And we never know who's gonna listen to the podcast and who needs to hear it, but it is. It's something that people need to be more aware of and more open to. And, um, you know, I think it's our generation um, of parents hopefully are starting to understand more and more, but I know there are still many that, that don't and that don't have a desire to learn about that. And it's, it's hard. It's sad. I do hope with this podcast that maybe one person will be helped. I hope so too, Susie. You're doing great things and I admire you for telling your story and encouraging others to do the same because it really, I think it's very important. And as, as we talked, it, um, it helps me really to go back and to kind of think through that timeline. And um, obviously I've focused mostly on my oldest son through this podcast, but um, you know, there's a huge story with my younger son too. And just thinking through all that and hoping that other parents will hear this and feel hope that you will get out of bed, you will keep going. And, you know, it's, we have to, as parents, we just have to, and we can only do so much. And I think the importance of taking care of ourselves too is huge. And for us recognizing that we can't do it alone as parents, we need others. We need to be listening to podcasts. We need to have counselors. We need to have people we can call when we're feeling down so that it, you know, this mental health that we're dealing with with our children doesn't end up taking us down too. And I think that's just the whole thing of us staying strong to be available to our children. It's that whole analogy of the oxygen on the airplane. Yep. You you can't put your kids on if you don't have yours on first. Right. Because if you can't breathe, you cannot help someone else breathe. Exactly. And I appreciate you sharing that hope piece Mm -hmm. because that's why this podcast exists 
is to hopefully help people know that they're not alone and there is hope. Right. And I love that you share the hope. Mm -hmm. Even though you have been through the unimaginable. Right. You've still got hope. Mm -hmm. And I'm thankful for that. Suzanne, I'm so sorry that you lost your Nick. Thank you. I know I will, I will see him again. And I'm thankful for that hope as well. And your willingness to share and talk to me about your journey and your loss is really incredible. And I know that it's going to help people. And I just can't thank you enough for just talking to me today. Well, you're doing wonderful things, and I'm so thankful for all the people that you have already had on your show and the people that you will continue to talk with. And I know that every single person has um, a story, and I'm so thankful that they're willing to share that and to be a voice on your podcast with you. So thank you. Thank you again for being on this episode of Just a Mom. Thank you, Susie. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or ideation, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please share this with your friends and anyone you think may find these interviews helpful. Thanks again for listening to Just a Mom.